How's everyone doing? We're all out of our minds. How about you? <laughs> yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. And out of our minds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious so, where everyone is geographically located. Uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, I assume and you're here. William, are you in Pittsburgh? I am in Pittsburgh, yeah. in the city itself, yes. Yeah. All right, so um, everyone feels ready to go? And Yeah, sure. Are, All you, right. ready? are you guys I'm ready? ready, so. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome to Office Hours. Uh, I'm Nihar, and... All three of us, me, Aditi, and uh, Joyce, are members of the Interdisciplinary Initiative. Um, in each episode of Office Hours, we invite two professors with different backgrounds to have a conversation about their journeys and the intersections of their work. Um, in this episode, we've invited Professor Stephen Finger and Professor William Alba, both of whom are involved in several academic departments at CMU, and I believe come from very interdisciplinary backgrounds. Um, also, this is the first time we are recording a remote episode, so we hope to steer the conversation in some sense towards online learning. Why don't both of you uh, please introduce yourselves? If you don't mind, tell us about um, who you are and what you do at CMU. I'm Susan Finger. I'm faculty in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. I also have a, um, it's not exactly a joint appointment, a courtesy appointment in architecture, and I'm the Associate Dean for ID8, which is the Art and Technology Program. So that's my official role at CMU. How about you, William? Sure. Uh, my name is William Alba. I'm a professor here at CMU. Uh, my home department is in chemistry. I also have a courtesy appointment with the Dietrich College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And, um, and you know, my, my, my appointments in both chemistry and the Mellon College of Science and in Dietrich reflect uh, that I am also the director of the Science and Humanities Scholars Program. I've uh, been here at CMU for nearly 15 years, about half of my career. And, um, and I came here for the Science and Humanities Scholars Program. I also direct the pre-college summer session for high school students who'd like to take classes. And I'm, um, I'm the assistant dean for diversity in the Mellon College of Science. Fantastic. So my first question is about both of your journeys. Um, honestly, how did you get to where you are and how do you think you found yourself in working in such an interdisciplinary context today? Okay, I am old, my journey is long, and I could spend a whole hour just telling you how I got here. Um, and I've been thinking about how much of my story to tell you, because when I went to college, which was, I will tell you, in the late 60s, uh, I thought I was gonna major in English or history or psychology or something like that. And um, I got there and I liked those courses, but wasn't exactly what I wanted. And I had always liked math and science. And for some reason, I have no idea. I do not remember ever getting any advice from anyone. I decided to major in physics because I realized that if I didn't stay in the sequence, then I would stop taking it, right? And a way to make myself stay in the sequence was to major in it. So I majored in physics. And there's a little side story that um, before, while I was in high school, I was a, a summer theater apprentice and I started working backstage and I built sets and I ran lights and I made props. I did a little bit of acting. Oh, I am a dancer, but I'm not an actor. Uh, and, and actually, I found out that I love to dance when I took dance classes as a summer apprentice. And I started working when I came back while I was in high school. I worked in professional theater. So I worked backstage. I'm actually one of the guys who has stars on the, um, you know, the CFA has those things out there. I worked with one of the guys there when I was in high school, which just mind boggles me that I actually got myself a position in a professional theater company and that I knew somebody like Eugene Lee when I was in high school. But I was doing that. So when I got to college, I was also doing that. And I was working with a lot of engineers backstage. But when you're in physics classes, when they talk about engineering, they go like, oh, engineers, they look things up in handbooks. And uh, so I didn't know that I could do that. And I didn't realize that the people who I worked with, who I loved working with, the stuff I loved doing was engineering. Nobody said, nobody said that to me. Like, uh, so I did that, and then I was a physics major, 
But I realized I was, I was actually ended up as an astronomy major. And there's a long story about why I didn't have to take optics when I was an astronomy major, but that's a different, longer story. Um, and uh, I still like the humanities. And I, I had a phenomenal professor. Why did I take uh, classical French tragedy with Corneille and Racine? I have no idea. Somebody told me it was a good teacher, so I took the class. And I loved it. Uh, and so I started taking all of these medieval classes in medieval sort of history. But one of the things I really liked about medieval studies was you could do anything you wanted as long as it was medieval. So I did medieval history. I did medieval archaeology. I did medieval language and literature. I used, I've had eight years of Latin. I used to be able to read medieval manuscripts. I can't anymore. I've tried to show up to someone and I can't do it anymore. But I used to be able to read medieval manuscripts in Latin. And so I decided, oh, I was never going to be an astrophysicist, even though I really, I really liked physics. I like, and I particularly like astronomy. One of the reasons I like astronomy is because they can't run their own experiments. You have to look out in the sky and wait for your experiment to happen. I just, I love it. Anyway, um, but I realized I was never going to be an astrophysicist. So I said, well, if I go into medieval studies, I can do anything I want as long as I stick to medieval. And I could actually read the medieval science manuscripts, which nobody else could. Like, um, and then, William, this is going to take forever. I hope you get a chance to talk to me. Um, that um, somebody announced that they had a student who was working in arms control and disarmament, and they had a summer job. Oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, so I applied for that. So I got, and the reason I got hired was the person who was doing the hiring looked at my transcript and said, well, if she's interested in all that stuff, she could be interested in this. Uh, so I went to this group that was in, it was actually part of the State Department. And they handed me a box of uninterpreted um, IBM punch cards. And they said, this program does something. We don't know what it does. Figure it out. So I spent the summer figuring out what the cards did, what the program did. And at the end of the summer, well, it was actually a min-max game of LBM launched missiles against uh, B-1 bombers taking off, and uh, at, which I knew I was not interested in pursuing long run, but I had really enjoyed figuring out what the program did. And at the end of the summer, uh, someone said to me, oh, that's engineering. And they go like, oh, that's engineering. I didn't know that was engineering. And then I realized, and actually my father was an engineer. And, I, um, and on my way home from the, on the train, oh, I had applied to graduate school and I was ready to go to graduate school in medieval studies. On the train ride home from um, DC to Providence, I changed my mind and decided to go to graduate school in engineering. So I called up Penn where I'd been an undergraduate and they said, sure. I think it was when they were looking for women to be engineers. They gave me a scholarship and I started in engineering. And one of the interesting things about that is I think if I had started in engineering, when I look at my friends, because back then, like the engineering curriculum was just absolutely rigid. Like you take this and that's all you take. I don't think I would have been able to stick it out as an engineer. I think I was really lucky. I've been totally lucky. I've often wondered if somebody gave me advice would I have ended up here. I don't know, because I just kind of, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that looks interesting. And um, so then I became an engineer, but I have been in systems engineering. My degree is in civil engineering. My PhD is in interdisciplinary, interdepartmental, independent, I forget all the eyes. Um, PhD, my thesis was on integrating uh, photovoltaic, independent photovoltaic power systems uh, into the electric power grid. And that was back in the early 70s. Uh, 80s, but not early 70s, but late, late 70s. Um, but everything I've done has always been interdisciplinary. Oh, I was going to, so my thesis was in electrical engineering. I was officially in civil engineering. I also had OR. I went and taught in a manufacturing engineering program, which is why I ended up there, I can tell you, but then William would never get a chance to talk. Um, manufacturing, um, I was a program officer in design theory at the National Science Foundation. I came here originally in robotics and then ended up in civil engineering. And how I ended up in civil engineering was because there was a fantastic person in civil named Steve Benvis who said, come, come be with us. And so I did. And one of the things I really like is that once you're there, you can keep changing, but you have one job. So I haven't since then. I've been here almost three years. Um, I've been here and uh, I keep changing my job, but I get to stay in one office with one title, which is really nice. Okay, William, now let's hear your, oh, which, but I was gonna say, because one of the things you wanted to know was why do I end up um, advising so many interdisciplinary student-defined majors? It's because I totally um, identify with that, right? And I, um, you know, I'm interested in everything. I like to figure out what am I interested in? And I think, even though I very rarely tell the students my story, I think somehow they sense 
that I'm interested in everything. Okay, now William, now I'll let you talk. Okay. Um, I would say, Susan, that my journey, my life journey to take me to where I am now has a lot of similarities um, to, to what you're saying. It's not as long a journey um, and, and, it's, and it's woven around in different kinds of ways. But uh, I'd say one commonality is it seems like we're both very, very uh, curious people. Curious in the sense <laughs> of what odd people we are, but, but, but also curious in the sense that, you know, uh, medieval studies, and in your case, and, and engineering, and all sorts of different fields. And, and in my case, uh, again, across the sciences, the humanities, and, and the arts as well. And I would say... I would say that 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 children, when when they they have when they're not worried about, um, you know, fundamentals, uh, when they're sort of at the peak of, of of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when when they're not worried about where their next meal is going to be coming from, or if their parents love them, I think that children who are privileged in that kind of way uh, are able to maintain a kind of curiosity about the world, and if they have the resources available to them then they, they keep on reaching out. Uh, I was privileged. My first education as a child um, was at a, a Montessori, a Montessori in the South Bronx in the um, late 60s and early 70s um, that was run by uh, YMYWHA. So it was uh, a very much a, already a multicultural kind of environment. And being Montessori, a very open-ended kind of environment. You know, essentially, I didn't the, the best way this was explained to me was actually when I brought some students to the Pittsburgh Montessori that my children later enrolled in many years later. And, and he had never had that kind of educational experience or witnessed it before. But he saw what the classroom was like and, and he was shocked and he said, oh my God, this is a classroom of free range children. These are children who have resources available, but they just wander to wherever they want to go and then do with some guidance, whatever it is that they want to do. And, and, um, and I had that as an early childhood experience myself as well. And, and I think that that's, I've had the privilege um, of being able to maintain that kind of curiosity that I really do think all children begin with and not all children are able to maintain. I've been able to maintain that all throughout, all throughout adulthood. Um, so uh, my degrees aren't as varied as yours, Susan. M my degrees are both in chemistry. When I was an undergraduate, uh, I, I, um, I was enrolled in a program where I didn't have any general education, in, in any breadth requirements. I didn't have any major requirements. I didn't have to, to do any single one thing in depth. Um, and, and the only requirements to graduate actually were take a certain number of courses that you, you, you get a you know, certain grade in, um, pass the swim test and take PE for two semesters and, and write a senior thesis. So um, I, I manage, I had the great deal of freedom to basically explore across this large university, uh, all sorts of different fields. And, um, and still it wasn't enough. I mean, it, those four years were enough, not enough. And maybe Joyce can sympathize a little bit with that as well, right? Uh, being, you know, even five years is probably not enough. I, I, for me, it felt like a, a lifetime of this exploration might not be enough. So, um, but I embraced all that I could. And along the way, because again, I was privileged in other ways. Um, when I was in high school, I took two years of college chemistry at the local college in my small town in Ohio. I was already pretty advanced in chemistry. So as I took a lot of courses along the way, I ended up becoming a chemistry major. And, and I did my honors thesis in chemistry as a result. And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. But then I thought, well, maybe I should apply for MFA programs in writing. But, but here's the thing. Um, as privileged as I am in many ways, of course, I, I come from um, uh, a certain kind of background uh, where my parents were immigrants. And they were, they are uh, professional immigrants. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the message that I constantly got from them over my entire life is you can do whatever you want, but you have to be able to sure, be, you have to be sure that you can make a living doing whatever it is that you study. And um, given what I knew about the world at the time, 
our knowledge is, is always limited. Given what I knew, I thought, oh, I should major in something in STEM. Um, and so, and because I had that head start in chemistry, it was very natural for me to go on to graduate school um, in chemistry. Uh, but even then, uh, I was, you know, graduate school is all about being focused and narrow. And, and even then, I was TAing astronomy classes. I was taking classes in, in the geography department and in mechanical engineering. You know, nothing to do with the, the studies I was supposed to be doing in uh, in, in chemistry and in, in, in uh, solid state chemistry, theoretical chemistry. Um, and then when I left graduate school, uh, th th then it was like I got to explode all over again. And 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 the kinds of jobs that I've taken, you know, I, I've I've taught at a prep school at at a, uh, taught writing at a, at a liberal arts college and, and then ran the math and science program at, at an art school for four years, uh, taught in the great books program uh, at a college where I had to learn and then teach ancient Greek. So, so I mean, there, there are all these sorts yeah. of yeah. wonderful experiences because I really do think if people are, are open and if they're, they're blessed with a certain amount of intelligence, I don't think you have to be really smart, but you have to have, have the privilege of having the time and the space to be curious. I think anyone really would find themselves uh, having all sorts of different interests that, they, that they're able to explore more or less throughout their entire lives. Yeah, I like privilege, free range, and uh, curious. I think I never thought of those adjectives for myself, but they certainly all apply. <laughs> I think particularly the privilege, because my parents just wanted me not exactly to be happy, but to be um, they were both professors, right? And so that idea that I would, you know, sort of stay in school uh, and keep learning new stuff was just fine with them, right? Whereas I know some of my students feel that pressure, you know, you have to have a profession, you have to have a job. And I never, I never felt that, that pressure. And I know that that's a huge privilege. Fantastic. And I guess both of you actually do have a lot of similarities, just like you said. Um, but now I think you find yourself probably on the other side of the coin, maybe like guiding these somewhat curious and free spirits. How do you approach that? How do you take your experiences and convert them into maybe advice? Or how do you try to um, change your teaching philosophy so that students are given as much free reign or ability to explore as, as much as you guys did? Okay, so I'm thinking of a couple things. One, one class I've been teaching since the mid 80s is called Rapid Prototype Design. And the whole, it's an engineering design class, interdisciplinary. Um, and the whole goal of the class is to get students to learn by experimentation that you learn through failure, right? You try something, it doesn't work. You say, why didn't that work? And then you learn from what didn't work and you do the next thing. And one of the things about school is students learn really quickly that you should only do things that you're sure are going to work because that's how you get a good grade, right? If you do it, it works, you get a good grade. Okay, uh, we get rewarded for doing things that work. And so they're very, it, it takes a long time to, um, to get particularly engineering students to understand that, no, if you only do things that you already know how to do, I will flunk you, right? I want you to do things that you don't know how to do, right? I want you to explore. And so I think that idea that, and, and, um, and also that you can learn for yourself. Right, that it doesn't work, you find it out, you look something up, and you keep sort of digging deeper, and that's how you that's how you that's authentic learning, right? And getting people to go there instead of thinking that everything is known and everything is written down and I can learn by reading stuff, instead I can do the exploration and I can do it, I can do it. Um, that's one way. And then um, William, you go, because because there's another part that has to do with advising that's very different than sort of how do I teach in a way that lets students explore. So that's that's one way is by saying, you know, um, I want you to do experiments that have the possibility of failure. How about you? Yeah, I, I would say that that I have a greater appreciation in, in this last uh, latter part of my career for, for advising, for academic advising, than, than when I first started out teaching. For, for a while for me, Teaching was just a kind of joy. It was relational, but it was also performative in the sense that you just felt like, oh, I'm going to get in front of a class and we're going to talk and we're going to do some give and take. It's almost, uh, how does Poe call it? Uh, poe Shen Lo recently started to think about this as um, kind of like doing, doing stand-up, 
right? In the sense that there's some interaction between you and the class. You went, uh, but but that you also bring a lot to to the class classroom yourself. I thought that's what what teaching and education was was largely about. Um, uh, th that kind of performance, and I I still think that's a very large element of it. But but advising advising in which you know you're you're with another human being and and you're just one on one together and and someone opens up their their vulnerability their heart and 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 shares what it is they're concerned about you know um uh, students at, at at places like like CMU you know they're so engaged both intellectually and emotionally it's 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 complicated because um one feeds the other right if you do well in a class then you're really happy, but but then there's a, a negative cycle that can happen too. If you're not doing well in classes, you think, "Oh my God, I'm a bad human being," right? So, so so the emotional and the intellectual get really tied up, and then someone opens up themselves um, in your office, and it, it's it's an it's an amazing it's an amazing kind of thing. And and I think my role in that kind of situation is is to listen, um, to serve as a sounding board, and, and to echo back what what I hear students saying about themselves to share a little bit about my own experiences with the total knowledge that that my individual life does not apply my own experiences can't be everyone else's experiences everyone has their own their own kind of journey um and i think what i what i try to do most <laughs> is is try to provide a kind of counterpoint to whatever melody i hear the student relating to me so that um, I, I don't want to, you know, shock or contradict them because I, I do want to pay attention uh, to what it is that they're saying in their own particular life situations. But I want to provide them different perspectives that they may or may not have thought about. For a student who's, who's really focused on one field uh, and, 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 and seems very centered on that and is very successful, I'll, I'll try to, to get them to broaden out a bit and, and to, to stretch out and do things they might not have thought about trying, or, or, or a student who is good at a number of things and ends up being diffuse, I remind the student that, that they really ought to become good at one or two things so that they can move forward um, uh, in that, those one or two things after they graduate. So, um, you know, that's one example of, in which I try to bring in my own uh, emotional and, and intellectual life experiences, but it's really the student's song, and I'm just singing very faintly in the background, try, trying to give them another other kinds of ideas, ways to hear their, their, their own music. Yeah, and I'm thinking, so um, I have a lot of students who come to my office who are totally lost and they come in and they say, you know, three different people told me I should talk to you, so I'm here to talk to you because three people told me I should come talk to you, so here I am. Right. And uh, I have this, um, one of the students made this, I'm, I was, she made it for me. All right. It's a counterpain. It says, um, for the professor who always believes in us. And I was completely unaware that that was the effect that I had. Right. They come in and I guess because I was lost in a way, right. I didn't know where I wanted to go. And I just start talking to them about what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what, what are you interested in? What do you want to do? And I start those conversations and I'm not, um, I'm just trying to find out about them, right? I want to know who, so I'm not trying to give them advice. I'm trying to get them to tell me who they are. And several students have said like that, um, you know, sort of starting to think about who they were and what they wanted and, and what they wanted to, to get out of their education, sort of turned them around and got them on the right path. But um, I don't... I don't do that. Like, it's not my goal. My goal is just to find out who they are and what they want and how they think and, you know, what makes them tick. I'm really curious. And in the process of finding that out, um, I find that, that, you know, a lot of them do figure out what they want and they figure it out for themselves. They just need a way uh, to talk about it in a safe place, right? That I'm not somebody, because I, I do have faculty members who say, well, I only want to talk to students who want to major in what I'm interested in, right? And uh, I'm interested in anything, everything, so I can talk to anyone, right? And um, and I really enjoy those conversations about figuring out, you know, what is it that motivates this person? What do they enjoy doing? What do they want to, you know, what are the things that really, again, what what really makes them tick? And um, so I don't, 
I don't think of it as sort of, there's sometimes when I give advice, like I help students write NSF um, graduate fellowship essays. And when I do that kind of advising, I'm giving them advice. I'm saying, this is what they're looking for. This is what you need to tell them. Um, but when they have those conversations with students who are trying to figure it out, they're just conversations about, you know, let's figure it out. So, and I enjoy those the most. Those are my favorite. I definitely have felt like, or I'm still like one of those lost students who <laughs> my advisor's office and be like, you know, seeking both emotional and intellectual advice. To me, I think listening, it's a form of acknowledgement in itself because there is a lot of signals from all over the place, especially as someone who, you know, is in between different academic fields, you know, signals that say like, oh, you don't necessarily belong in either spaces. You're not really good at them. Sometimes like listening to a professor who has gone through this path where they've also tried these different things, it's a very comforting thing because like, oh, wow, they've become, you know, these role model figures for me and they've been through similar experiences i guess i'm okay too and i will be okay as well so i think for me that's why the, the fact that my advisor simply listen it just means mm -hmm. a lot too and i guess that leads to a question like in my last five years at cmu as an in, like a student in bxa definitely there have been the feelings of being an outsider. And I was wondering if you guys have experienced that yourself, like going from, again, Miss Evil studies to engineering, have you felt like you were a beginner when you first got in there? And how, how did that make you feel? And how did you get, get over it and seek for expertise in that field as well? So part of it is, you know, when I was, um, when I was starting out, um, in all of physics and astronomy, there were two women. So my experience is very different from yours, right? So I've always sort of been not one of them, right? Always been um, uh, not quite right, right? That you don't you don't match what you're supposed to look like to be in this field, right? So it's the imposter syndrome, like I don't belong here. And um, you know, it's took me. You know, all the time up until I was fairly far along, like associate full professor, before I realized I no longer felt that. And I don't know when it changed, but I certainly felt like an imposter the whole time I was in graduate school. Because, you know, and I, and I said that at the beginning, right? Why did they give me a scholarship? Because they wanted more women in engineering, right? Why am I here? Because I'm a woman, right? Uh, and so I've all, I want to say two things. One, I have always had that imposter syndrome, and at some point I slowly shed it. And how did I shed it? I can't really tell you. But at this point, um, I don't feel it, right? I feel like I'm an associate dean, I'm a full professor, I can say what I want, uh, and I don't care whether you think I'm a lawyer, I'm not you. You know, I don't care. Uh, but it took me an awfully long time to get here, right? And it wasn't necessarily a conscious journey, right? It's just something that slowly happened over time. And so when I talk, sometimes when I talk to students who are in that feeling, like I don't belong here, um, I can tell them my story and I can tell them how long it took me to get here. And all I can do is wish that it takes them less time. Uh, but I think everybody is, uh, almost everybody feels, you know, slightly Almost everybody has that imposter syndrome, right? Some people have it more than others, but almost everybody has that sense, I, I don't quite fit, right? And um, sort of learning how to come to terms with where you do fit and who you are and what you want to be, and in some sense, not caring whether they think you fit or not, right? Being able to do what you want to do. Um, it's, it, it, for most people, that doesn't come easily. Uh, and all I can do is hope that eventually it comes to most of my students. And I know, I know from some of the things they tell me that they're slowly getting there, but I think, I don't know, William, what do you feel about, um, not quite being slightly like you're not, you're not a, you're not a chemist, right? You did all of this, um, moving around. Who are you? Do you feel that? I do. Uh, I, I, in fact, people directly tell me things like that. Um, and, there is an element of truth to it, uh, quite frankly, right? I mean, I'm not a chemist in the way that, just coming from chemistry faculty meeting, not, not in the way that uh, much of the rest of the department is. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there, there is a sense, I mean, Joyce called it, I think, sort of having a beginner's uh, uh, frame of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, Susan, you started to talk about, and I think this is very closely related, um, you know, what it feels like to be, um, like, you feel like you're on the outside, like you're an outsider. Um, because being a beginner and being an outsider, I, I think that the, those two sort of go, go hand in hand. And also this notion of, of either being told implicitly or explicitly that, that you don't belong. For, for me, I, I, I've heard of, I've read about imposter syndrome. I don't think my own personal life experience was with imposter syndrome per se, but it certainly was of the sense of not feeling as though I belonged anywhere, uh, feeling as though that I'm always an outsider, right? So, so probably the, the very earliest experience that was, was also back in childhood when I was you know, six years old and we moved from uh, you know, where I was born, New York City, to this small town in Ohio. And everything was different about small town Ohio from urban New York City. Absolutely anything that you could name. I could tell, I could talk an hour about that and what the differences <laughs> are uh, between those. And, and over the years, you know, I, I would feel like I don't belong in New York anymore. I, I don't feel comfortable there anymore, but I don't feel comfortable in this small town either. You know, and and so this this notion of of somehow eventually, whether you're a beginner, whether you're an outsider, I mean, in the end, we're all we're all kind of weird. That's that's sort of the beauty of life. That we're all different in some kind of way, right? That that as 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 uh, as they say in one of these what Disney? No, is it Shrek? Uh, let your let your freak flag fly, right? I mean, just just be who you are, uh, whether you're a beginner or an outsider or whatever. And and let let me say it this way also that that I'm I'm longing I'm longing to see um, the next film in the Up series by Michael Apted. You know this series where years ago they took these children from across Britain when they were seven years old, and they interviewed them and they asked them, "What do you think your life is going to be like? What do you think about boys? What's your you know what do you think about money and so forth?" And then they returned and asked these same individuals every seven years of their lives the same questions. And you can see them develop from childhood through awkward adolescence, through, you know, uh, 21 and 28. And there, there comes a point, and I think it's around 42 or 49 for these particular individuals, where all of a sudden, they start to, to look more relaxed with themselves. They just, you know, not all their childhood dreams were fulfilled. They aren't who they thought they were going to be, but then they've come to accept it. And, and I'm at that kind of age right now, you know? And, and I understand, as, as I look forward to these films, I see what life's journey can be like. So part of it is a kind of, you know, acceptance of yourself over time. But I think I'm with you, Susan, that, that I wish that we could somehow speed up that part of our personalities a little faster than, than, than life apparently gives us liberty to. I guess in, in some sense, right now, especially in these trying times, it, it's very difficult to, I guess, come to acceptance for at least as a college student, what my life has become. At least I didn't envision my four years or half one eighth or one fourth of my yeah. four years being like this. <laughs> um, how has it changed for you? How, how has teaching changed? How have your lives changed? Um, how have your roles as mentors changed? And how are you perhaps staying positive or trying to accept <laughs> these times? You go first this time, Maria. Well, okay. Um, again, I want to say that that in much of my life I have been privileged. Um, I have a job. I have, I would say, multiple jobs. Actually, multiple roles at the university, and um, I'm I'm well well occupied and, as far as I can tell, needed um, at the university for for the kinds of work that I do. Um, so I can sit at home and order food, uh, you know, to groceries to be delivered online and, and cook at home and, 
and be with my family and, and, and have a roof over my head and, and quite frankly, feel pretty comfortable. I'm not saying it's a vacation. It's by no means a vacation. The meetings happen two or three or four times as frequently. There are more meetings than ever before. You know, there are all sorts of situations shifting beneath our feet constantly. Yeah. Um, all, and, and, and so the, the, there's plenty of work to do. But in terms of my body, in terms of my physicality, in terms of my emotional health, I think overall I'm doing at the moment pretty well um, because I, I think I have a, you know, a, a certain uh, justified sense of gratitude for, for where I happen to be. So uh, it's not where I want it to be either, you know, Nihar, obviously, right? I, I'd rather be um, among students. I'd rather uh, be seeing people in person. I'd rather we were having this conversation together in the same room. But um, uh, I think it's it's just simply a sense of perspective that that you know um, for many people in this world, um, for many many people in this world, compared to me, their their lives are just not as as well off as I am. And I, and when I realize that, when I wake up in the morning and go to sleep and and throughout the day, just briefly reflect on that, I think, wow. I mean, I, I'm I'm actually okay. Really, at times, actually happy. Yeah, I think really you know realizing how many you sort of intellectually you know how many uh, people in the U.S. are in jobs where they're living paycheck to paycheck and then something like this happens and you see the effect of that it's really um, uh, I don't even know what the word is it's just overwhelming um, yeah that yes and, and I and, and along with William I feel very um, privileged again um, to know I have a job um, to know I can keep, I don't like teaching online at all, but to know that I still have a job and I can still meet students and talk to them um, is, a, is a huge privilege. I haven't met anyone yeah, yet coming back to the teaching online. Say it again? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I, I, would, I was about to reinforce what I think you just said. Uh, I'm going to be one of those other people. Yeah, I don't like teaching online. The, the, the problem is that when you're with, when you're in a classroom, there's a blackboard and you all see the blackboard together, right? The, the, I, can, I can move around the room. I, I can look into people's faces and see whether they're understanding. But there's, there's a lot that happens live when you're with other people that just is impossible or, or is very slow or, or, or you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, the next version of, of Zoom, I want to show me the eyes. I don't care about the video. I just want to see the eyes of all my students. I want to know what's going in and what's being processed. Because it's, and, and it's funny because one of my students was talking, you know, the students were sort of going around the room doing presentations. And the students said, you know, I'm really boring. Just talking at my screen, I'm really boring. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all feel like that, just talking at your screen. Um, and particularly because, you know, I've got one class has 30 students in it, so they all have their video off. So you really are just, you know, talking to you, talking to yourself um, and really want to know like what's going in. The other thing is that the, the course I mentioned before I'm teaching this semester, um, it's all about hands-on, it's all about teamwork, it's all about making stuff, right? And can't do any of those things. And so the real lesson is about learning through experimentation and I can still teach that, but the students came into the class because they wanted the design and the teamwork and the making stuff part of it and they're not getting that. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of the courses that are sort of studio lab kinds of courses. They're just almost impossible to deliver online, right? So I can I can tell you how a bicycle works, but I can't teach you how to ride a bicycle online, right? There's just some stuff where you have to be there. And I think also, you know, that sort of, um, sort of being with people, you get energy from other people and you just, you don't get it when you teach online. Yeah. So have you guys been, I, right before uh, Professor Finger, you, you were mentioning that you were sending things to your students, right? Right. So, so I'm sending them Arduino kits. So there are like 30 little boxes in my front hall uh, because I, I um, one part of, of both of my classes, I have a responsive structures class and a rapid prototyping class. One part of that is sort of learning to do the Arduino so you can activate, you know, activate your 
print something, activate something. And uh, so that is one thing we can teach online because there's something called Tinkercad where you can do a lot of the Arduino simulation so you can learn it. And then they'll get the physical parts and they'll each be able to make their own little parts by them, you know, um, on their own. So, yeah, I'm sending them things. <laughs> okay. And, and, and uh, several of the um, courses in IDA are doing that, that uh, sending kits out to the students so we can do things together online. But um, in general, I think like in, during these times, it's truly a test of how technology can be used to maybe better education. Um, so, and maybe this is like a glimpse of what education will look like in the future. I hope not. <laughs> um, so there's some things, and, I, and I've talked to the students about this. There are some things like when I teach it to you, if it is sort of um, facts and ideas, right? I can talk to you and in that, and sometimes then the online is better because if you don't quite get it, you can back it up and listen again. But there are other things that are conversations and the conversations are just not, you know, it's, it's really different to have an online conversation than it is to have an in-person conversation. And that thing like we are three people working on a common project and as we manipulate it together, we see different things in it, we respond to it. It's almost like improv, right? That, and that is almost, at least so far, almost impossible to do online. So there are some things, there are certain kinds of knowledge are better delivered online. There are other kinds, again, like um, things that are like the, the how do I teach um, people how to act when it's about dialogue and interaction when they are not there with the other person, right? It's really difficult. So I, I hope it's not the entire future of education because I think that would be really sad. Physical stuff is important. The physical interaction is we're herd animals. <laughs> and Dr. Alba, you've been tasked, as you mentioned before, with teaching or creating the or directing the summer program, the pre-college experience at CMU. Yes. Um, so how have you been approaching this from an online point of view? For those of you who are just listening to the audio, he's tearing out his hair. <laughs> we well, can see him in the video. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Over the last uh, uh, week, especially, I mean, it's, it's been practically sleepless. Over the last week, um, a lot of it has to do with figuring out for, uh, for these college courses that we'd like to offer online. Um, figuring out if the if the faculty are enthusiastic, not merely willing, but enthusiastic uh, about teaching in that in that kind of format. Um, figuring out certain legalities. They are not allowed minors unless they have uh, certain legal clearances. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those legal clearances, the, um, the mechanisms for getting those done um, have been shut, shut, shuttered, have been closed down uh, because of uh, COVID-19. So um, I, I'm not doing, at the moment, a lot of direct contact with the students. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, keeping them at a certain distance as we try to figure out uh, together, administrators, um, you know, vice provosts, vice presidents, uh, the faculty especially, and, and, and I, uh, trying to figure out how can we um, create a meaningful experience um, and a rigorous enough experience so that these high school students are taking college courses in, in which, you know, we're confident that they have sufficient knowledge, and um, and and a college experience overall uh, this this summer. You know, I mean, it's it's not uh, it's a frustrating task. It, it, I did turn to my wife though right before lunch today, and I said, you know, guess who did it? You know, because it looks like we're we're about at that at that place now. Guess who's making this summer program run? And and. I was being a little, you know, self-congratulatory because it's not me. It's, it's really the team who's doing it. But in a certain sense, I just sort of had a little moment of joy where I said, guess who did this? Guess who's making this program run despite the, all, all this craziness that's happening? And, and she looked at me, she said, you're doing it. I was like, yes, it's me. It's me. I'm doing it. <laughs> so, you know, I think we also have to give ourselves um, while, while we have properly humility for, for what it is that we've managed to do with our work. But the summer program reminds me of another aspect of that. Like one of the goals of bringing the students to campus is to sort of 
begin to make them independent people, right? And if we all stay home with our parents, we don't learn how to, you know, how to do our own laundry, to know when we have to go get our, you know, it's time to go get dinner. But there's certain skills that you learn as you move away from home. And a lot of summer programs, particularly those that are geared toward high school students, have that, you know, what, what does it mean to be a college student? How do you arrange your own oh. schedule? And that, and that's, that's just not going to be possible to do. Right? And some of the students have told me, yeah, you know, you go home and even though you think you're a grown-up, the parents still treat you like you're a kid. You know? They still want to protect you a little bit because that's their job. Their job is to keep you safe and they don't want you going out, right? And, oh, my God, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just turned, I just turned 55 this week. And, and still, my parents, I think that, swear to God, they think I'm like 10 years old or something, the way they treat me sometimes. <laughs> I mean, they still love, they, they love me, but, but, you know, their vision of me is frozen uh, at, at a certain time. And I also want to say, Susan, that you are absolutely correct, right? We have a family weekend halfway through the six-week program. And, and after three weeks, parents every year invariably come up to me spontaneously and say, what have you done with my child? You know, <laughs> they're taking care of themselves. They're, they're waking up and, and sleeping at the times that, that we think that they should be. You know, that, they're, they're, they're taking their studies so seriously. Like, what have you done? What's happened here? And uh, uh, being away from home, uh, again, if you have that privilege uh, of being able to, to do that, um, I think that's, that is a way of, 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 of grow, growing up. It, it's, a, it's a change. It's, it's a rite of passage in our society that, that has turned out, I think, to be very valuable and important for many people. I have one last question. And I think this is a good one to wrap it up. Um, when we eventually go back, how do you think things will change for you? Or maybe in terms of teaching or mentoring? I think for me, at least, I've learned to appreciate just the ability to go to class so much more. The ability to talk to people that I'm definitely not going to, or at least I claim to now, I'm never going to miss another class again if I <laughs> don't have to. And I'm going to try to talk with friends so much more often and do so many more things. What promises are you making to yourselves right now about what you're going to do when we're back to normal? I haven't thought that far ahead. In a certain kind of way, I feel like every day, every hour, I just need to take care of what's in front of me. I feel like when I was, you know, after college, uh, I, I took a, a few weeks and I went hiking in Wyoming. Um, and and uh, I thought it was going to be enjoyable and at times it was, but at other times it was, you know, I've just got to keep up. Let's, I've got to put one foot in front of the other to get up that mountain. And then when I'm at the top, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other to go back down again. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I haven't yet, and, and maybe this is a little embarrassing because I do try to be a far-sighted person. I haven't yet come to the point um, where I've thought a great deal about what it's going to be like when we're all back together. Um, when I, I suppose, if you ask me now to think about it, I, uh, I have a certain sense of of anticipation and joy about that, um, and and I think it's going to be wonderful for the students especially who are returning not it's you know the ones who are graduating for the seniors, it's terrible yeah, it yeah. Is terrible. yeah. For, 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 for the people who are returning and, and for the fifth year scholars really right for the people who are returning in a way it's like going to be this wonderful reunion i think you know it's it's it, i was just corresponding with one of my old college buddies from years and years decades ago and we were really reminiscing because his birthday's in April as well about how we're on a journey together, even though we're, we're we're far apart. And he and I, Mark and I, we see each other only once every few years now. But but you're on a journey apart, and then you're to come back together again. I think that will be very interesting and wonderful for for for, for, for you for all of us. I was thinking I was thinking a couple of things because one is I think. Partly, you know, because we're totally consumed, right? I, I'm on Zoom meeting, Zoom, 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 Zoom. I Zoom all day. Oh, in fact, I was going to tell you earlier one of the things you said. I have my phone set so at five of the hour it bings, so I go dance 
because I mean, I could stand here all day in front of my computer and just zoom and not move. I have a standing desk, but even if you stand all day, it's really tiring. So it, it goes off, I turn on the music, I go in and dance for five minutes and then I come back. And if I don't do that, I mean, at the end of the day, I can't move. Um, but, uh, I, I, all right, so here are a couple of thoughts, not totally coherent. One of the activities in my class that I'm not gonna to get to do is this design build. You build a structure out of newspaper, and one of the ways you win is you get as close to your team as you can uh, because um, you want all your body parts inside the structure, right? And I'm thinking, am I ever gonna be able to do that again, right? Are we ever all gonna get as close to our team as we possibly can? Is, is that, and I think part of what I feel is this it's not quite fair, but every time we made plans during the semester, we'd get another message from the administration and it would be like, each message was worse, right? Was a more dire thing that we had to do, right? So you keep thinking, okay, it's almost like magical thinking, right? I don't want to make plans because if I make plans, it's not going to work, right? And so I think a lot of us are just sort of living, you know, getting through this. We'll get through this semester. Um, We'll, and we all had to re redesign our courses halfway through. We've done that. We're going to all these meetings about what's going to happen in the summer, what's going to happen in the fall. Uh, and I think until some of the situation resolves, um, that journey, right? Our ship is just like, we're, we're going where the ship's going. <laughs> we're not making plans, right? And then at some point, we will get to have some control back. But a lot of it just feels like, you know, just, you know, go with the flow. You don't have any choice. Um, so I, I hope, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to hug my students, but I sure want to when I see them again. Um, because, yeah, you miss, I miss, I miss the, the, the close interaction with the students. That's, that's what I miss the most. Thank you guys for coming. This is really insightful and wonderful and i'm so glad we got to hear you guys talk to each other again we hope to keep doing this with different professors in some sense the fact that people are somewhat more free uh this is somewhat of a boon to us that we can keep doing this but um thank you for participating once again and, and thank you for the for the opportunities to talk to you guys it's wonderful to see all three of you and, and you as well susan yeah. Nice to see you. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.